please open with me to Genesis 46, chapters 28 to, or verses 28 to 34. Hear then God's inspired and infallible word. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation, that you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this special morning in which we can offer our praises and our petitions and our thanksgiving to you and also have the opportunity to hear you speak to us through your inerrant word. And may that be so even now. Please guide my lips to stray not from your truth into the opinions of men. And please, I do trust that you have prepared your people here to receive and profit from your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I last had opportunity to preach before you about a month ago, I uh, was speaking with one of you afterwards. A fellow asked a question, how I picked that text in Genesis to preach from. And as I answered that question, I realized that that was probably a question more than one of you might have been pondering, especially over the last about two years since we've been back in Omaha. And each time I've had occasion to preach, it's been from Genesis. Might have seemed that it was pulling out of thin air in the later chapters of Genesis. So I wanted to clarify, to set the context for today, the reason why uh, two years ago I began preaching occasionally from, I think it was chapter 45 is where I began back then. It's merely the fact that when I was preaching in Colorado in the church there, first I preached all the way through Matthew and then through Genesis, church closed. I was at whatever, chapter 44 in Genesis. And so coming here, I figured, hey, I've already done some preparation that's already been on my mind. I've already laid out a map going forward. So I'll just pick up where I left off. So it's really nothing more deep or complicated than that. Um, it's not that I really had this burden to uh, speak to you all from this book, but really it connects to um, a hom homiletical principle or two I wanted to share with you, um, and I do apologize for not having clarified that sooner, left that a mystery or perhaps just a confusion, my fault. But that method of preaching, uh, where we pick a book and go through it verse by verse, as Pastor Kaiser uh, consistently does, as uh, Pastor Swab is doing, say, for communion meditations and, and other ministry of the word up here, um, of uh, sequential expository preaching has many benefits, uh, the least of which is uh, very practical that allows the preacher to not have to fumble about thinking what's next. Yes, there is some thought that goes into uh, delimiting each preaching portion, saying, okay, you know, five verses works here, and then the next 10 verses, or maybe it's 15, or maybe it's two. That does take some thought, uh, but at least you don't every Monday have to cast about thinking, all right, you know, do I go to Psalms this week? Do I go to Galatians? What am I to speak on? So you have really a, at least a road ahead of you, and you have to decide how many steps to take. 
Um, so that is a very practical benefit, the very real fact that by simply uh, taking the next text that comes along, we don't have to reinvent the wheel each week. But also, as a part of that, is you really have to take what comes. Uh, I can't just pick out, you know, I really am interested in this topic, so let me find, you know, go to my concordance, find the right words, and direct myself to a particular text. I have to come with what come to you with what comes next in Scripture. And I'll admit that many times I'm like, okay, verse 28 follows after verse 27. What's in verse 28? And it does take some reflection. And uh, Lord willing, the Lord gives us all something useful. And so it prevents us from playing with our our pet issues, our our things that we're always uh, drawing our own attention to. And it requires us to spend time to reflect on what it is that God wants to say to us, right? It's more important what God wants to say to us than what my opinions might be. So hopefully, Lord willing, by having this sequence dictated in the pages of Scripture, we can be more open to what Lord providentially wants to say to us as opposed to how we might pick things out uniquely. The last little uh, homiletics lesson uh, portion this morning before we jump into the text uh, has to do with, okay, so the text is here. We know what comes after 27, 28. That's pretty obvious. We know our math. Uh, But what is our principle for understanding the meaning of the text? And a really important principle is that the meaning is singular. Uh, We can't come to this text and be like, oh, well, to them it meant this, and to these people it meant this, and over here I'm really more comfortable with this. You can't be so flexible with the meaning. So the meaning is singular, but yet the applications might be varied. Different people in different times might be able to apply God's word differently. So let us have confidence that God's word has a singular meaning, and it is our job after having determined and opened up and explained and understood that meaning to apply it to our lives. So my goal for our time together this morning is to unfold that singular meaning of this passage and to propose some useful applications. And so, getting directly to the point, and there's no mystery to it, I put it out there in italics in the top of your handout. As you can see there, both from the title and from that summary paragraph, I believe that in this text we learn the Lord provides for His people in times of adversity, which, by way of application, will often require of us, and this is where the rubber meets the road for us, it will often require of us contentment, gratitude, humility, and industry, even while being outcasts. So let us see how we get this meaning and these applications as we go through these verses today. The first part of that guiding principle, that key meaning, is that the Lord provides in times of adversity. I really uh, don't want to skip over what might be kind of obvious, and it was to me as I spelled out this title, the adversity part, right? God provides, provides at all times, but really the emphasis here is that God God provides in times of adversity. So we need to explain and ask, it's a, a very reasonable question, what adversity did Israel and all his family face? Certainly Joseph, key figure here, faced adversity. He was mocked by his brothers, you'll recall, as a youth. They nearly murdered him sold him into slavery. It's kind of a compromised position. They wrongly, or once he was sold and taken down to Egypt, he was wrongly accused, left in a foreign prison, uh, isolated in an ungodly land. Even once he was raised up from that jail into a position of great power, he was facing adversity, not having freedom to travel outside the country. He was not allowed to return to his homeland or his family, which scripture tells us was a great burden in his heart. Uh, Definitely, his circumstances there could have been 
been a lot worse in many, many ways, but even still, we must admit, Joseph faced many different aspects of adversity. Similarly, Jacob, though a vastly wealthy man with great resources at his disposal, faced adversity. Uh, He was reluctant to leave his homeland, all the comforts and the habits and the territory that he had there uh, with the familiarity and the promises attached to it. Uh, Though he, as I've explained earlier, was aware of the divine purpose for their descent into Egypt, still, I believe, it was difficult to travel. It was difficult to leave behind the places and the memories of the earlier years. And I think he would have known that he would not return, that he was going to die in Egypt, and he had to trust his descendants to bring his uh, bones back. And so that it was an adversity. So all of them, all of the people involved in this story, faced a measure of adversity upon their arrival in Egypt. They were not free to settle wherever they wanted. Uh, they were restrained both by the present and the future. Remember the drought that would extend for several years yet to come. The adversity had started before, it was ongoing upon their arrival, and it extended ahead of them. So, Israel faced adversity. Let us understand and establish that. So given these aspects of that adversity, let's see several ways in which the Lord provided for them. And again, I've spelled it out fairly clearly for you in the outlines. First, I want to draw your attention to the place. God provided a place in which they could be sustained during these times of adversity. And notice the emphasis, I believe, that's placed on Goshen. Reading again, verse 28. Then he, that is Israel, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. It struck me as I reflected on this verse, and it's also mentioned in the one following, that the divine author really seems to be making a deal here of Goshen. He could have just said, you know, northern Egypt or the place up there. But no, three times in one verse, four times within the span of two verses, we read Goshen. Makes me wonder if there's something significant here. Uh, Perhaps this territory was very well known uh, to the degree that it was famous even to non-Egyptians. So as Moses wrote this down to be carried on and shared with generations later, he's like, hey, you you all know about Goshen, right? And so this is where uh, our ancestors went. Uh, Kind of like if you're... uh, saying you're headed to Hawaii, you could just say, hey, we're headed to the beach. But to say we're headed to Hawaii means like a beach. You know, this is a special place. This isn't just any run-of-the-mill place. Or if you told someone you were going to ski in Colorado, that conjures up images of, you know, powdery snow and grand lodges and all the special things that come with really good skiing. You could just say, we're going skiing. And people might think you're going over to Crescent. And so you specify uh, these things to add more color, more understanding. So it is very likely uh, that Goshen was well-known. People knew what that entailed. If you said, hey, I'm taking you to Goshen, they're like, Goshen, wow, thank you so much. And so they knew what was there. They knew it was a special place where they would be cared for, and it had that meaning to them. It could be uh, that the word Goshen uh, has some meaning, uh, but as I looked, uh, in terms of etymology, uh, but as I looked into it somewhat, it appears that it's unknown, the origins of this word. One of the best guesses is that in some form of Egyptian and such, as it's translated into Hebrew, it has to do with uh, a place of abundance. And so that would be a descriptive name uh, that came for it, uh, telling people that this is a well-watered land, that the grass grows there, and obviously this is a place where the sheep would do well. But again, that's not uh, perfectly settled. 
We don't know for certain the name of it. In my estimation, uh, the name of the place is so prominent, and certainly it is prominent here. Again, mentioned four times in two verses. So I believe it is prominent uh, that the Holy Spirit wants to draw our attention to it, if for nothing other than the fact that Joseph mentioned it by name back in chapter 45. There in verse 10, upon revealing his identity to his brothers and imploring them to go back and get their father and the whole family and to return, Joseph said, I will settle you in Goshen. I will put you in the best place in the land. So Joseph identified it. He made a commitment to get uh, his family to Goshen, and here we are seeing the fulfillment of it. So often throughout the Bible, uh, the Lord is very zealous to have us know that what was promised comes to pass, and that's clearly identified here. So all that to say, the Lord has provided a place for his people during this time of adversity, and that place has the name Goshen. Second, God provided his people with protection. And here I'm speaking of of protection on a human level. Certainly he protects his people divinely, angels, and all these other things we're familiar with from other texts. But here I want to focus on human level protection. Reading verse 29. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Well, also verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, etc., and so forth. So the protection that I'm drawing our attention to here comes in the person of Joseph, uh, who was to be their advocate before the ruler of the land, the Pharaoh. Uh, Verse 29, the first part of what I read makes this plain in that Joseph traveled in a chariot. That's not everyday, run-of-the-mill, your average laborer uh, form of transportation, right? This indicates his great high rank. And verse 31, the latter part of what I just read a moment ago, makes it plain that Joseph was their advocate and that he says, hey, I will go ahead of you. I'm going to talk to Pharaoh. This is what I'll tell him, and then you're going to come, and this is what you're supposed to say. So the very fact that Joseph could come into Pharaoh's presence and plead his case and make a request and really kind of state, hey, this is how it's going to be, uh, shows his position of rank. The fact that he had that voice to speak to the ruler. The ruler respected him, had trusted so much to him to take care really of the whole welfare of the entire country during this great famine. So for a time, God provided extra care, really, and not to see here, going above and beyond, by giving them an advocate with Pharaoh in the person of Joseph. God could have merely given them a place, a fertile land where they could have survived, but he did more than that. He gave them Joseph, who already had that prominent position, that ear of the king, as it's said, to have uh, protection and to be their advocate for them. Thirdly, the Lord provided his people with the comfort of family relationships. We see this in the latter part of verse 29 and on into 30. He, that is Joseph, presented himself to him, Israel, his father, and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. These are sweet words if we recall the earlier story of the great uh, flood of tears that came from Joseph uh, when he greeted his brothers and the heart-stopping impact upon Israel when he heard that Joseph was still alive. All of that emotion now poured out in their reunion. And uh, if you study the timelines on this, you'll find it's been 22 years since Joseph 
left the family since he headed off that day to go check on his brothers and never returned. And for all that time, uh, well, subtracting a few months of the journey of Jacob down to Egypt, but for the bulk of that time, Israel had thought his, father was dead, or his son was dead, and Joseph had wondered, will I ever get home? And so now that sweet reunion. Uh, after this initial reunion, it's likely that Joseph, being so occupied by his high-level duties, providing for their distribution of all the stored grain and all the uh, tasks that go along with that, he likely was not able to uh, dwell with his family in Goshen. Uh, he had other uh, responsibilities to take him away. But still, what a joy it would have been after all these years to know that we're in the same country, right? We're just, you know, a short chariot's ride away. Uh, to know that each other is well. Uh, the fact that they are able to visit likely periodically. So again, God provided not just a place, he provided an advocate, and he provided that reunion in which they could be taken care of during these times of adversity. One more provision worth mentioning uh, in verse 34. You shall say, this is uh, when they come before Pharaoh, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Just want to emphasize here, as I put it in that subtitle, work. God provided work. At various places in God's Word, we see the instructions that work is a good thing, whatever it is, right? Keep busy. Don't be idle. Uh, we need to provide for ourselves, for our family, also to have enough, to uh, have an abundance to give to others. Uh, while the Egyptians look down on a specific field of work, the shepherding, uh, we are not to. Uh, long, as long as it's lawful labor, it is not shameful. Uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary at this point, writes, An honest calling is no disgrace, nor ought we to account it so, but rather reckon it a shame to be idle or have nothing to do. So again, no lawful work is shameful. Rather, it is a shame to be idle. So God provided work so that they would not be idle. So through the means of work and the grass growing in this fertile land, they could provide for themselves. He provided for them to continue to be provided for. He didn't bring them to this new spot to languish. He brought them there and met their needs through the means of work. Well, having seen these, and we probably could draw out others, but seeing these very literal and sort of earth-level uh, provisions that the God of all the universe made for his people during this time of adversity, let us now turn our attention to a few applications uh, that we, so many years later, can derive from it for ourselves. And uh, certainly these uh, lessons are offered as suggestions. I'm not overly dogmatic about he, how each and every one of us needs to grow in one of these or cultivate it among our families, uh, but I do offer it for your consideration, for you to reflect on the text and to hear God's answer to the question, now what? What am I to do to respond to your word? I see several general aspects of Christian character that are uniquely uh, elucidated as we consider God's provision for his people in ancient times, in times of adversity. And I should note that I definitely offer these lessons within our historical context. Uh, to a certain degree, uh, they are universal and would apply at all times to all people. But let us reflect on the adversity we are facing now and how specific lessons can apply to 
us specifically, in this time specifically. Uh, We're certainly very different people living in very different times in a different land than Jacob's family, and we face different adversities, but we face adversity nonetheless. You could add some in addition to what I'll share now. Uh, The money in our pockets is growing worth less and less day by day. Our economic system is an ever-expanding house of cards ready to fall at any moment. Uh, International relations between our country and others are uh, uh, increasing in problem. Horribly worded. So greater conflicts. Allies we thought we had aren't. The enemies we thought we'd made peace with are being stirred up again. Murder rates are rising in our cities. Courts and legislatures continue to advance humanism while marginalizing Christians. Uh, The novel coronavirus still has a lot of epidemiological unknowns, isn't going away anytime soon. Uh, We face another presidential election where the two major candidates, frankly, need stickers on our foreheads that say bad and worse. And I'll let you decide who gets which sticker on which head. So let us consider, (laughs) with that being the lay of the land, as we step out of this sanctuary of God today, how can Genesis 46 inform our lives? The Lord continues to provide for his people in times of adversity. We are his people. We are facing adversity. So how can we weather this in a godly way? First, contentment with the location drawn directly from point A in the previous section. I imagine people in Jacob's family, and they had every right to say so, were thinking, Egypt? Really? This is not a good place. This is not a healthy land. It's a heathen nation filled with rank idolatry. You told us to not surround ourselves and engage with the heathen, i.e. in Canaan, and here we are in Egypt. How are we to take care of our children, and what is the future of our children's children? Those are logical questions. Uh, They may have remembered the trip of their forefather Abraham, that's in Genesis 12, down to Egypt. His, not just survival, remember, he actually prospered there. So his success there was only accomplished through God's superintending care, and that was despite Abraham's schemes which is actually the point, right? Let us remember that it is exactly because God is superintending all of history that things will work out well. How does the saying go? The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And that's true in terms of geography. Even if you're in the middle of a wicked nation, as we are today, we can, should be, and need to be content that we're in Nebraska, USA, in the year of our Lord, 2020. We might wish we were somewhere else in some other age, but here we are. So let us be content with it. It is God's will. He is good, and we must trust that His will in this situation is good too. And here are the challenging and comforting words from Hebrews 13, verse 5. <clears throat> let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is with us in these afflictions. That is what offers us comfort. Not the circumstances, not the weather outside, not the rules of our governor. The Lord being with us is what offers us comfort and can provide for us contentment. That's the perspective we need to have. God has the task of managing the affairs of the whole world. Our task is really quite small in consideration to walk in the Spirit and contentedly press on day by day. Amen? Well, second, along with this contentment for the location, I challenge us to have actual gratitude. Uh, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm, I'm okay with this. I'm, 
content, rather be somewhere else, but I can deal with this. But we must not stop there. We must come to the point where we can thank the Lord genuinely with hearts of thankfulness. Thank Him for the location. This takes grace because our fallen hearts are prone to uh, jealously, really, that's what it comes from, jealously have a grass is greener mentality. If only I was over there, if only I was doing that other thing, if only this you know, life situation was different, then I would be happy. And with discontentment like that comes complaints, and then comes bitterness, and we must, by grace, reverse that downward spiral. We reverse it with thankful hearts. And here in Genesis 46, the Israelites could thank him for many things, for the well-watered land of Goshen, uh, for plentiful feed for their animals, for the protection that Pharaoh's armies provided, because remember, they're within the boundaries of Egypt, so they fell under that protection too, uh, for the protection that came from having Joseph as their advocate at the court. All of these things, they had genuine opportunity for gratitude. And Paul, famous verse, instructs us in 1 Thessalonians to give thanks in all situations. Uh, I found it personally very therapeutic to sit down and purposely make a list. You know, it's easy to just think, oh yeah, yeah, I'll be thankful sometime. When the fellow is praying prayer of thanksgiving after communion, oh yeah, amen to that. You know, somebody else says it. It becomes more personal. It's more tangible. It's more rigorous for your mind and heart to really have to sit down and be specific. So I challenge you to take an opportunity to say, Lord, what five things. If you're really good at it, 10. Make 20. Build a list over time. Things that you are genuinely thankful for in this potentially irritating situation, right? And grow in thankfulness through that. Take the time to sincerely thank the Lord for each one of those things. And if your heart is unmoved and your mind is blank, first ask Him for the thankful heart to have grace-enlightened eyes in order to be able to see the things all around you that you need to be thankful for. And I thought of offering suggestions here of things we can be thankful for, but my list would probably seem a little trite to you. So I'll let you as your homework, make your own list, and do pray through that. Moving to point C, next then. We learn from this story the practical dynamics of loving our enemies. Of course, the context is adversity. So loving our enemies in the context of and in the, the grueling day-to-day struggle of adversity. This is one way the Lord provides for us in the midst of our afflictions. He gives us grace. He gives us situations that cause us to exercise that grace by loving our enemies. And I drive this from the very fact uh, and the demonstrated love of Joseph to his brothers. As I explained earlier, in his youth, they had great envy. They had hatred in their hearts. They went so far as to conspire to murder, uh, which they then changed that into mere kidnapping. Joseph in prison, of course, uh, unjustly, having been assumed wrong with the uh, uh, sort of sub-ruler of uh, Egypt's wife, uh, forgotten the help he was to one of his fellow prisoners, all of these injustices over and over again, uh, but yet he did not grow bitter. And at the very end of that, when by God's providence he had the encounter with his brothers coming for food, he could have done far less than what he did. He could have had revenge. He could have at least ignored them and said, you know, I don't have to listen to everybody's plea. Sorry, I'm busy today. But no, he went far, far beyond the worst, far, far beyond the minimum, went above and beyond, helped them with those several trips of donkeys loaded with grain, and here welcomes them into the best part of the land and provides for them through this difficult time. It would have been easy 
for Joseph to do much less or to do the minimum. But it's true, grace born love in his heart that moved him to not be ambivalent, to not do the minimum, but to demonstrate true love by these acts of kindness. So we, I challenge all of us, to be mindful of opportunities to extend mercy to others who might be facing greater afflictions than us. Or even if we're afflicted, to break ourselves out of the doom and gloom, to bless others, to love them, insofar as we have been recipients of amazing mercy ourselves. Times of affliction are a great opportunity to do that. It can say a lot to the world about who we are in Christ. Next point, I've worded it in your outlines, the benefit of being an outcast. What I mean by this is that Joseph employed the Egyptians' bias against herdsmen in order to get his family established in a good place, right? The Egyptian culture really did not like uh, shepherding. They thought it was gross below their level. And so here's this area where that's what happens. So send the people over there and they are set off in their own area. They are outcasts. They become geographically isolated because they are culturally outcasts. But it was a good thing. They had, and I didn't add this to the list earlier, but this is something they could be thankful for. It kept them from mingling with Egyptian society, of imbibing more and more of the Egyptian culture than they otherwise would. So we can ponder the benefits of being a marginalized group within 21st century America. Uh, We don't hold the reins of power in government, media, or education. Uh, We might wish we do, and that's part of our future hope, but right now, we've got to be honest. Writing's on the wall. We don't. So think for a moment. What are the benefits of this? What are the benefits of being marginalized, of being outcasts in our society? Uh, One that comes to my mind is that when this whole thing, by that I say the American empire, comes crashing down, Lord willing, the church won't go with it, right? If we're too too closely knit with uh, the uh, dangerous bubble that is American culture, and when that bubble pops, we pop with it. But if we are distinct from it, bubble can pop, we're on the outside looking in. Or to use that uh, house of cards picture again, when that house of cards comes crashing down, we're not buried under the rubble. We're on the outside looking in and can offer solutions and help. So if we're on the outside looking in at the reins of power, which, let us acknowledge, are corrupt and rotten, when that falls apart, we will be looking at the rubble heap instead of being buried underneath it. We'll be ready to rebuild upon the foundation of Christ and his word rather than having to dig ourselves out from under the trash. And so we need to carefully and consistently stand on the foundation of God's word, raise our voices in order to confront evil and support righteousness. The battle lines, remember, are not red and blue in terms of political parties and the state affiliations. They're not coastal and interior in terms of um, industry. The battle lines are Christ and Belial. That is the distinction we must keep in mind. Gospel and unbelief, that is the difference between man A and man B. Only when standing on God's word can we navigate all of the controversies that confront us today, all of the pitched battles raging in our world, we can offer a truly cohesive worldview that will butt heads with each and every tribe insofar as they are on the unbelief side, they're on the Belial side. Only when they're on the Christ and the gospel side can we be allies with them. So all that to say, let's embrace our outsider status. It is a good thing. Flee from the temptation to be popular or what the world considers normal. Cling to God's view of a new man.
created in Christ Jesus. Second to last application here, the blessing of fellowship with God's people. And this does follow closely on the heels of the previous one. Uh, Since Jacob's family was isolated from Egyptian society, society, they weren't able to socialize, mingle, have cultural context with the Egyptians. Who did that leave, right? It left the other Israelites. God kind of narrowed the choices on who their friends and associates could be. By default, they had to rely on each other. That is God's chosen people. But here, as it applies to us, I do want to focus on it relationally rather than culturally. Uh, I wanted to be careful also because I'm not advocating we withdraw from the culture or avoid altogether relationships with unbelievers, right? If we were to avoid or if we could not engage with the world, we'd have to be out of the world. But God has called us to be in the world but not of the world. So how can we be in the world, you know, surviving, buying and selling within our uh, economic system today, How can we be in the world without being of the world? And also, remember in the context of here of being marginalized, of being outcasts, the question really is, how do we respond when unbelievers reject us? It's not so much a question of me saying, you know, you're not a Christian, your ideas are out of accord with this word, so I'm going to take a step back. It's rather because the uh, unbelievers in the world have so grabbed the reins of power, they're pushing us away. So how are we, we to respond when they push us away? We can see a silver lining, as it were, in the storm of bias that results in us being marginalized. Uh, and how might we be marginalized? Uh, some of you more attuned to all this than me, but let me offer two brief thoughts. We might find it increasingly difficult to find employment with mainstream companies because of workplace, they call it non-discrimination laws. And yes, that's ironic because they're discriminating against us. But anyway, and so our economic futures might be limited. Uh, We might find the handy tools of our smartphone apps, uh, email, and social media taken away by expansive hate speech laws. I know some of our churches have had podcasts pulled down because those podcast apps rules had laws against hate speech, which they were terming uh, consistent biblical Christian preaching as hate speech, so they no longer have access to those platforms. So in response to this changing landscape of uh, international and interpersonal relationships, what is the upside? I believe the upside is connecting with the people closest to us both geographically and, again, in terms of being in Christ. What is it that really unites us as Christians? And also what unites us as a local body of Christians? Is it secondary and tertiary applications of the finer points of the law and liberty? You know, in times of freedom, when we don't have to quibble over the big things, we can then turn to quibbling about the small things, (laughs) and we can find friends who agree with us on the small things, and that's who we hang out with. But in times of conflict, when the big things again become really important, the big things become our points of bonding. So rather than these other issues, which are important, and we can talk at length, those aren't uh, unessential, they're not totally to be ignored, but it must be Christ's blood applied to you and to me, to each one individually and effectually embraced by faith. That must be the one thing that definitively binds us. And if we find that we don't have that, then there never really actually was a reason to be together, right? And if we're convicted by the fact that we have turned from that what Revelation calls first love, that's a point for repentance, to come back to that singular important point of identity, to know that that is the foundation that we are building upon. 
Because if Jesus unites us, then we will still be united no matter the circumstances of current laws or practices, different things derived from various principles. And I believe the Lord not just might, but will and is using these times of adversity to test us. Do we really love each other as we ought? It's easy to do when we agree, right? It's easy to think about what should we do about illness and quarantine when that's all theoretical, when the worst is a seasonal cold or flu. But when something else comes along, do we still love each other? Do we have grace? Do we embrace different viewpoints? Do we go out of our way to do things to bless others instead of what I think is right? That's the question. I think the Lord is testing us. As the saying goes, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. All things, charity. And that's not scripture. It's derived from it. So I don't want to, you know, exposit that phrase. But uh, biblical principles there. In all things, charity. Very challenging. Lastly, coming back to the work facet of our lives, I've noted the blessings of having opportunity for godly labor. Um, At this point in our discussion, let me shorten this a little bit. To say that we might, uh, as I alluded to, uh, be pushed out of certain industries, we might be denied promotions, otherwise bear the brunt of the newly empowered humanism in the workforce, or simply find a lack of opportunity as our whole economic system collapses. None of us have ever faced a true economic collapse. Uh, my grandfather, who died almost two and a half years ago now, he was what, 107 when he passed away, he, he couldn't really remember the Great Depression. <laughs> he had so many memories in the 80 years after it, he'd kind of forgotten what that was like. But uh, my dad has told me some of what he remembers his father describing to him is nothing like the Great Recession of 2008. We think that was bad? No. You know, you see pictures of the Dust Bowl and you're like, oh, wow, okay. And that went on for miles and miles and miles, for years and years and years. So we really, as rich Americans in the 21st century, have zero idea how difficult it could be. Uh, reading Pastor Robinette's emails about the situation in Myanmar gives a bit of a taste. You know, how does it work when you're stranded in the jungle with the uh, torrential rains washing out your roads and washing away your crops, right? That is difficult. We haven't faced those difficulties in our lifetimes. So, whatever it turns out to be, uh, let us be thankful for our work. Let, be, let us be diligent with it. Let us uh, invest wisely in all of that. Uh, Whatever wrong is done against us or difficulty that comes upon us, let us not lose sight of the opportunities that still present themselves and the very, very generous hand of God who promises to provide for our needs. And I should note here, needs, not wants. We have a lot of wants. (laughs) Let's step back and just look at our needs. All employment, however unglamorous or mundane, is still a blessing. And as I said before, idleness is what's shameful, not particular jobs. As written in Ecclesiastes 9, whatever your hand finds to do it, do it with all your might, right? Find joy in it because we know we're serving the Lord. Well, to conclude, uh, friends, while none of us here is a Joseph, uh, none of us are Jacob, I trust that the Holy Spirit has opened up his word today for our instruction and edification and perhaps some conviction. Uh, In times of adversity that we've gotten a small taste of already that might grow in the days to come, it's far too easy to respond as natural man and become discontent and angry or even bitter. But that is not the response the Lord would have for us. Our sinless Savior Jesus met every challenge, all the adversity, infinitely more than we faced, with endurance, with peace, and with joy for the good result he saw still future. So for us, as new men, 
born again in Christ, indwelt by His Spirit, confident in the Father's goodwill. May we, by grace through faith, prosper in times of adversity, cultivating contentment, gratitude, love, fellowship, and industry. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, truly you are so good to us, and may we not merely see your goodness in all the comforts we have, because if those comforts are taken away, you still are good. You are good beyond all measure. So give us grateful hearts uh, that we, as we uh, read of your kind treatment of our forefathers centuries ago, that we would see ourselves somewhat in their place, that you have met our needs, that you promise to continue to meet our needs, that above all else, you've met our need of a Savior. In the person and life of Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to you, and all else pales by comparison. So give us joy and confidence in this, and uh, joy and confidence in living our lives for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.